Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. My guest today is Melissa Johnson. She's the author of the book Becoming Creole, Nature and Race in Belize, published last year by Rutgers University Press. This is a closely observed ethnographic account of what it means to inhabit the identity of Creole, with particular attention to the relationships between humans and what Johnson refers to as the more than human. She offers new ways to think about notions of the self and of race through things like mud, fish, sausage, mosquitoes, and other unexpected items. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Melissa. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for um, interviewing me for this. This is exciting. So, yeah, I'm really uh, excited to talk to you about this book, too. It's a rich ethnography of a place that you're familiar with professionally, but also through links with family. Um, and it's also a place that you've been going to since the 1990s. And I'm really curious as to your process did you land there and then at some point realize that this was your book, or did you go with the intention of studying Creole Belizeans and their ways of life? Right. So that's a good question. So I I was thinking about this in preparation for this interview. I've always had a question of how humans relate to the natural environment. That's been a question that I've been, I've been interested in since I was little. Pardon me, I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm I might be a little muffled. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> but I went to graduate school um, and I was equally interested in either geography or anthropology to try to study that in tropical rainforest contexts. So I wasn't planning on researching in Belize. I happened to, I spent a semester at Indiana University because they have tropical American anthropologists there. Um, and I met Richard Wilk, who's a well-known Belizeanist. And I took two classes from him and he had mentioned Belize in his classes. And I frankly didn't even really know where it was on the map. Like if you had asked me, I couldn't have pinpointed it. And he asked me at the end of that semester if I wanted to be a research assistant for him. Um, And I jumped at the opportunity because my plans for working in the Amazon had fallen through. That was another long story. And so I I said, sure. But then I had to look in the map and see where I was going to end up going And so I went there in 1990 as a research assistant for him, um, did a household census sort of survey thing. And I realized that this would be a perfect place for me to answer the questions I had about the relationship people have to the natural environment, if people are conservationists, how and and why. Um, And so I decided to plan my PhD research around returning to, actually it was Crooked Tree, that village in particular, um, so I came back to the U.S., did my comps, and then wrote up my proposal with Belize in mind. So yeah, so Creole culture was something I planned to look at, but I was specifically interested in that human nature relationship. Yeah, and so I want to talk a lot more about what you found there. But just um, to step back a little bit to to think more about the place, and it seems like some ways a very entrancing place. I was really interested um, in your discussion of colonialism and in particular, the search for mahogany and the way that it set up social structures kind of geographically. I wonder if you could describe that a little bit. Sure. And that's absolutely critical to understanding why the people who live in Crooked Tree and Lemonal and those villages actually live there. So, yeah, but Belize is an interesting um, 
place because it's got so many different cultural groups. And the only ones that can say that they actually have lived there forever are Mayan people, but even them, they, they move around. But so in the 1700s or so, um, 16 and 1700s, British buccaneers who were, who wanted to be like plundering ships of gold, um, weren't that successful at doing that and realized that if they, um, that there was a, a log called logwood, that if you cut that and sold it um, to British suppliers, it provided a really good dyewood. And so early buccaneers turned to selling this logwood um, fairly quickly on the shores of this place. Um, and this was something that poor people could do. Like you didn't need much. You just needed basically a saw and the ability to accumulate a bunch of logs. And that's how this, how Belize was sort of settled by English men to begin with. This was at the time, of course, when enslaved Africans were being sold and used throughout the Caribbean for plantation slavery, which never happened in Belize. But a few of the logwood owners, logwood works owners who made a little bit more money did purchase some enslaved Africans. And the logwood trade pretty quickly turned into, um, well, still it continued on, but mahogany became a more um, desired wood being sold out of the Caribbean and the Americas for the growth of train cars and um, furniture in England in the early 1800s um, and late 1700s. Mahogany is a strange tree. So logwood grows in these kind of shrubby clumps on the edges of waterways. Mahogany are huge. I mean, they're like ridiculously enormous trees. They can be 30 feet across one, one particular tree and they are very dispersed. So and they grow on dry land. So it's a it's quite a feat to find a mahogany tree and then to cut it down and then to haul it out to be able to ship across an ocean. So no one could do that just as, you know, one individual English woodcutter. So it was only the wealthier people who had made a little bit of money off of the logwood who were able to purchase a number of enslaved Africans who were able to actually cut mahogany wood. You'd have to have a gang of workers, enslaved workers, um, doing that and then hauling it out to the sea. So in Crooked Tree and Lemonol, the places where I researched, it was a, there are swampy lowland places, lots of logwood occurred there. So there were um, British buccaneers encamping in these places and the mahogany works that were where wealthier people could make money were on a bit of drier land. And what would happen is that the, the wealthier people who could, pay to have somebody cut mahogany tended to live actually in the, on the outskirts of Belize on the keys out on the coast where the winds were cooler and you have nice sea breeze. So the wealthy people lived there and the poorer people who were still cutting logwood and might sometimes work in mahogany cutting operations would live in the kind of swampy lowlands of the villages that I study because they're kind of upriver, kind of out of the way. They were the centerpiece for logwood cutting, but then they were kind of marginal for the mahogany era. And the wealthy, wealthier men who had groups of enslaved Africans who were sort of making money off this territory really didn't care if poorer whites and then a growing population of free colored. So the Caribbean has this you know, classic race, color, class hierarchy where you've got the very elite are typically white, wealthy people. The poorest people were enslaved black Africans. Of course, that category black didn't emerge until the 1800s very clearly. Um, and then in between people of all different sort of shades and hues and it tended to be the case that if you're wealthier, you tended to be lighter skin to some degree. So the people that were living in these villages that I study were kind of the in-betweens. They were 
poor white people, free coloreds, some enslaved people. There definitely was enslavement also happening here, but it was kind of a marginal area to the to the development of the massive wealth of of the aristocracy that ended up controlling Belize um, and creating great profit from it. Is that kind of what you wanted me to say? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that that's very helpful in terms of just the, getting a sense of the lay and the, uh, the lay of the land. Um, but the other thing that we should set up before, again, getting into more details are the ways that you frame the book. So on one hand, you draw from ideas about assemblage um, that is sort of um, the framing throughout, but also um, this idea, and I, I really like this phrase of the more than human, because I think in a lot of the literature you see references to the non-human, and so I really like the way you unnegatived that. Um, yeah. So, um, can you just talk about how you arrived at those two particular conceptual framings? Sure. And so, you know, I've been thinking about writing this book since 1998 when I finished my dissertation research, one way or another. I mean, I, obviously, the book includes data from. 1998 all the way through to 2015 or 16. Um, and, and I was just in Belize a few weeks ago and I've heard stories that would fit right back in. So there's, it's, it's constantly sort of all these, the data that support the book are constantly kind of being formed for me. But um, I, I think I, one reason I sort of struggled, I had different frames I was thinking about over the past 25 years. And when this, sort of the, what you call the material turn or the ontological turn and philosophical thought happened in the past, say, 10 or 15 years, um, sort of turned to indigenous thought. Jane Bennett's vital, materi- vital materiality was really influential for me. And then kind of realizing that those were ideas that had been articulated by indigenous scholars a long time ago as well. But yeah, trying to decenter the human, that's what and that, that's what I kind of experienced people in Belize experiencing is this, is this sort of sense of human frailty, that humans aren't the end all and be all. That, and that sort of the importance of all of the more than human elements to, to making life was so clear to me that when I started reading that philosophical literature, I was like, oh, that's actually exactly explains what I'm trying to understand in this place. And related to that is assemblage, right? So this is Assemblage theory, of course, comes from Deleuze and Guattari, which are impossible to understand. <laughs> um, so I just use my own little reading of it. I really like Aisha Belisa de Jesus's use of it and um, Anna Singh's use of it. Um, Aisha Belisa de Jesus has a book called Electric Santeria um, about racializing and sexualizing assemblages in the Santeria religion in Cuba. And I really like how she talks about it. But the, the point for me of assemblage theory, um, and also Arun Saldana, brings to light kind of how important material things are. So the material world is always really present and important to whatever we're doing. Like you and I right now talking on computers, you know, through microphones, those are really important to what we're doing, what we're experiencing at this moment. And I think social theory under, under theorized that or didn't pay enough attention to it until recently. And then the other thing that assemblage theory does is it reminds us that everything is contingent. Yes, there are structures, you know, there's, global political economy, there's racialized structures, there's structures of inequality that shape our lives. And yet everything's also always contingent. So there's always the possibility for shifts and changes. And assemblage theory to me really draws attention to that. Yeah, that 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 really comes through in the book. And it comes through really beautifully because you tell these little stories that 
kind of expand into all of the bigger themes. And one of the stories that you tell that you you actually begin and also end with this story, which I thought was really interesting. This is the story of the encounter between Creole Belizeans hunting and the white echo tourists that show up and sort of they they kind of encounter each other and don't quite know what to do. What to right. do. <laughs> um, so I wonder if you could could you just take that apart a little bit and 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 talk about that encounter and how it how it works in the in the scheme of your book. Yeah, I mean that. So that I was literally I'm sitting right now on my bed in my bedroom, which is where I do a lot of my thinking and working. And this is actually where I first heard the story. My husband was sitting next to me. He was on the phone with his cousin in L.A his cousin who grew up in Lemonol and he was telling this story and in, in Creole and I wish I'd recorded it because in Creole, it's just Creole language does such amazing things for how people can express themselves. It's very, um, it's just very evocative and uh, really excellent. And so he was telling the story and I was like, Oh my goodness, this is like exactly what I'm thinking about in my book. And it was also really funny and they were cracking up as they're telling us. So I'm just going to tell it briefly here because if someone's listening to this, they would, want to know what the story is. So he, uh, so the village of Lemonol that my husband's from, I my husband is an, uh, Belgian Creole brown skinned, medium colored brown skinned person. Um, the village that he's from, it sits on the edge of a big wildlife sanctuary, uh, the Rio Bravo conservation management area, which is huge, huge protected area in Belize. Um, and he goes home every year to Belize for a couple of months. He's there right now, actually. Um, and one of his favorite things to do when he's home is to go hunting and fishing with a group of guys. It always varies, but there's usually a couple of people that are part of it. In this particular instance, he was with about eight men and they're all dressed in cam- camouflage. This is the, this was also the year after the Trayvon Martin shooting. So I think that's makes it all the more um, like salient. So they were all dressed in camouflage um, and they had machetes and guns and eight guys, eight black guys, basically, in this wilderness area where they were catching turtles and fish and hunting for uh, gibnut, which is like a big guinea pig type thing that's got really yummy meat. Um, and as they were had gotten up early in the morning and they were you know, walking out and they saw on the water, because there's a waterway that runs uh, along this protected area, the New River Lagoon, they saw a boat with a probably a, a mestizo, so Spanish-looking Belizean um, guide, and then these two white women, you know, either one of which could have been me, because that's sort of, I'm kind of like an ecotourist type person when I'm there. So middle-aged white women with binoculars and all that sort of thing. And the two parties like came up on each other suddenly, it was like it was a sudden encounter. And my husband said the look on the women's faces was just like this kind of utter shock because the Rio Bravo conservation area sells its ecotour packages. And of course they talk about the Mayan history of Belize and they talk about, you'll find parrots and toucans and alligators, but they don't mention the black history of Belize. So they weren't expecting, these women were not expecting to see eight black men in camouflage with machetes and guns um, <laughs> on the edge of the lagoon. So they were kind of, and my husband, of course, because he's like this, because he's got a sense of humor. He's like you he said, he's so tempted to shoot a gun, a plug over the over the top of their heads, not to harm them, but just sort of to frighten them a little bit more. But he thought better and didn't do that. But yeah, that moment of encounter, and he told the story numerous times. I've heard him tell it lots of times. And we actually told it back in the village of Crooked Tree where I did my research. And 
the mother of that household um, was so sort of proud to hear that he had been out hunting, doing what he should have been doing. And yes, that's fine that he would want to frighten the ecotourists and the ecotourists sort of, you know, so what I see in that moment happening is these guys that have a sense of, you know, 200 year long history of using these lands as their hunting grounds, fishing grounds, where they become who they are by hunting and fishing. That's how one becomes Belizean Creole is through knowing how to do those things. And some of these guys in that particular instance, a couple of them actually lived in the U.S. most of the time, just like my husband, but were home for the dry season or for Easter time, like right now, um, and were enjoying kind of, I argue that they're kind of replenishing their senses of Belizean masculinity that they can't really do in the U.S. as easily. Um, So that's a really important moment for them. And then the eco-tourists are having this like back to nature, um, wonderful, sublime moment. And they're sort of thinking that this this place is theirs to see birds and jaguars and to have these sublime experiences. And in that moment of encounter, both parties are kind of like, whoa, this isn't just about that. So the Belizean Creole guys are like, okay, this is also a protected area, also part of this global conservation thing, right? And the women are like, oh, um, you know, all of their sort of like, there's black people here. Oh, this is a whole different kind of kind of unsettles their sense of ownership, if you will. So I think it's a really interesting encounter for those reasons. And I might make other arguments about it, but I'm forgetting them at the moment. Yeah, no, I mean, there's two, there's two things. And I want to get back to this question of enskillment that you talk about and the ways that knowing how to do things are part of, are really sort of deeply part of the, the Creole identity. But, but just to linger on this, um, this question of ecotourism for just a minute. So the, the, the interesting thing for me was that the Northern Academy kind of points to ecotourism as this wonderful solution, right? But they often, but there is often this sense of um, evacuating any people from these spaces, right? And so it's, it was not just an encounter between these two sets of people, but also between two kind of um, understandings and almost even kind of bodies of literature about these places, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, these sort of imaginaries, right? Because the, the Rio Bravo Conservation Area materials, they have a they have a, a lot of materials. You can go look them, look them up online and see, and you'll see all the stuff about the Mayan heritage and you'll see all the stuff about um, all the different species that live there and the work that they do to conserve. But yeah, the presence of people is completely not supposed to happen. <laughs> Contemporary people. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think there's some ecotourist literature that uh, does, I mean, that there are, there can be people, but they have to be a certain type of people. Like it's sort of okay if people are indigenous, but being, but being black is not part of the standard ecotourism imaginary. Like that's not as a, as white middle-class ecotourists from the U S or any middle-class ecotourists from the U S going to a tropical area encountering an indigenous person is one thing, but encountering a black person is a whole different kettle of fish. Right. Especially when they are wearing camouflage and carrying guns. (laughs) Um, But, but that's actually, that actually um, leads me to the, the question that I wanted to ask about enskillment, which you argue is um, 
really this idea of embodied knowledge and learning and passing things down. And I was wondering, since you had spent so much time there, did that change over time? Did that, and also you, you do talk about things that come from the North, like, you know, guns and the, the camera, the boats and things like that. And so I was wondering if you um, observed how the acquisition of knowledge changed over time, over the course of the, of the years that you've been studying this. Um, yeah, sure. So like just off the top of my head, skills like knowing how to make a fishnet um, from, from string is a skill that's probably being lost as people purchase nets. And um, so we've, we purchase nets here in the U S and either my husband uses them or he sells them or he gives them to other people. Um, so that's, so there are some shifts like that. What else? Uh some stuff is still held on to, like dories. So the the sort of standard mode of getting about on waterways historically was in a dory, which is basically a canoe. And the best ones are made out of one big log. And there still are families in these villages that are known for how they, they have, they're known for their knowledge of how to create dories. And I don't think that's necessarily being lost, even though you'll see more aluminum boats and people purchase boats. Um, you can purchase boats in Belize, but a lot of people will buy them from the U.S. and send them down. Um, as far as like people still are holding on to, though, very I would argue pretty passionately how to um, hunt. So like my I have a I was just there, as I said, and I have a nephew who is 22 and um, he's probably going to be a university student. He's a top-notch cricketer. He's traveled out of Belize with the national cricket team. So he's cosmopolitan in lots of ways. He's been, he's gone, visited Chicago numerous times and he, he was winning. He was in the middle of like doing cricket and winning all his matches and being the most outstanding player, but he was most obsessed with getting his first deer. So the dry season's a good time to hunt. So he was going out hunting at night with my husband and also our, his father and some other people. And he was really mad because he had missed a deer. Like that was the thing that really, he wanted to catch his first deer. So I think people are holding on to their, their sense of like, that's, you know, knowing how to hunt well makes me who I am as a Belizean, as a rural Belizean Creole man. I think that stuff is being held on to knowing how to fish. Kids are still getting iguanas and birds. So some stuff is changing and some stuff is not. Some of the technology is changing and interestingly, um, people from the U.S. come to visit. So people who are born and raised in the U.S. will go to rural Belize and spend time there um, learning. And, they'll, and while they're there, they will learn some of the sort of things that you do as a rural Belizean Creole. They might not master them, but they kind of know that's part of what they should kind of know, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And what's interesting, what was interesting to me was the layering of that kind of knowledge with um, your discussion of the use of social media to kind of propagate this notion of, of you know, identity and the and the skills and the and the way that, you know, the, the deer, the, the newly hunted deer or the freshly caught fish is, is displayed and circulates around in social media as well, too, right? Yeah, yeah. no, again, one of my favorite little examples, and, I, and I, if I were... When I'm sort of paying really close attention to that on Facebook, I see it all the time. Although I wonder if Facebook's going to continue. Facebook right now is how people my age and maybe like to about 20 years younger. So I'm in my mid fifties. So people in their mid thirties 
and I still see some younger people on Facebook as well, but then there's like, I'm not on Instagram. So I don't know if, if Belizeans are doing Instagram. So that's, I don't know which, so I'm just speaking about the Facebook social media platform that I'm familiar with. Um, <clears throat> so my favorite example of that is the, I think I mentioned this in the book is uh, a couple who had, were born and raised in Crooked Tree. They moved to Chicago um, and she actually had a, she took her a while to, to have a child. And so their child is relatively young for them. They're relatively old parents, but they moved back to Crooked Tree when he was maybe three or four. Um, and a couple of years after that, maybe it was like six or seven, there's a picture of him that she, she posted a picture of her son um, catching his first fish by himself, his first, like, and not just fish, but like a particular fish that grows in Crooked Tree Lagoon, a crana. And he was holding it up and he was so proud and she was so proud. And she posted that on Facebook and it got tons of likes and all kinds of funny banter and comment about him, but just, just kind of that, you know, that they had lived in Chicago for a while and were return migrants and the pride that they were taking in their kid becoming kind of re-enskilled in a way that he might not have been able to be in, in Chicago, I thought was really interesting. But yeah, social media has so like every day people are posting stuff about how they miss the foods or um, the fire hearth, like how food tastes different when it's cooked on a fire hearth or uh, it's often about different kinds. Like right now people are making hot cross buns for Easter. So there's lots of photos of people making them. And I'm sure there's going to be some of them being made on a fire hearth because they taste different when they're, and better when they're made on a fire hearth. So there's a, um, there's a lot of stuff about food, which I loved uh, in the book. And it, it also, it connects to this idea that I was thinking about that you talk about um, the ways that people live and work kind of outside of capitalist structures, which is really ironic when we're talking about Facebook and the way that those two kind of, kind of coming together. Right. So not necessarily kind of in resistance to capitalism, but as you say, as you say, as you put really nicely, otherwise, right. So, which includes things like sharing and exchange and deep kinds of knowledges um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, about that. Yeah, that's, and that's the sort of, so I have, I sort of say my, see my book as making like three basic arguments. One is that, and this, these are arguments that are true for anyone, anywhere. People become who they are in their relationship with the more than human. Boom. That, I think I've already sort of talked about that, that racialization is always a part of those processes. I kind of talked about that um, a little bit and setting this up. And then the third argument I kind of realized after words is that um, there are these economies and colleges otherwise that exist here in this situation in a place that was absolutely forged in the depths of racial, racial capitalism. There's still something else happening. And I'm increasingly convinced that that's, it's a spectrum that that also happens in lots of other places that capitalism doesn't ever have a full firm hold on everything that there's other thing modes of being popping up. Um, so for Belizean Creole people, just as an example of like um very contemporary version of that is in migrant communities. So uh, we're part of a community of uh, Belizeans who live in central Texas. And um, if someone has, well, let's give the example I use in the book. My husband likes to fish on the Gulf coast and if he catches snapper, so he'll go, he'll pay to go on a fishing um, expedition on the, off the Gulf for a day and he'll catch a couple of snappers, which are, you know, expensive, nice fish and what he does with those always is gathers, he, he'll cook it in a traditional sort of Belizean way, which is uh, you grill it 
and you stuff it with vegetables and it, you use coconut oil on it. Um, and then he'll invite all of the Belizean migrants that are in the area that are our friends to come and eat with him. And, and that's true for any sort of, especially game and fish that are caught or fruit that have been um, handpicked, anything that people haven't purchased, something that somebody has gotten some other kind of way will be shared. And one of, I don't know if I put this in the book, one of my favorite stories um, is one of my central Texas Belizean migrant friends um, had a friend who was coming. So we're in Austin, which is about three hours from Houston. She had a friend who was coming from Belize to Houston with some hickety, which is a turtle that grows in Belize. It's actually endangered, but it's a favorite, like this time of year treat, Easter treat. And so this person had a bunch of hickety meat and they were going to be flying into Houston and they were going to have a meal in Houston and share it with whoever Belizeans were there. So she was going to drive from Austin to Houston, a three hour drive just to partake in that moment of sharing. It turned out that the person wasn't able to make it. So that never happened, but that's the kind of thing people will do though. Sharing food is so very, very important, especially the wild caught game and fish and um, fruits and whatnot from Belize. Um, And that kind of, that sharing economies, that those sharing moments are really central also to being lesion and being rural Creole, I would argue. Yeah. And I, just to um, extend that a little bit to something that you were talking about uh, earlier, this idea of um, the ways that people living supposedly on the margins, or they've been described as living on the margins, quote unquote, of capitalism, but they're actually at the center of this kind of rich and complex set of practices, right? And um, it it is true that I've been seeing um, people writing about uh, those practices in that way. I'm thinking about the work of Anath Singh and James Scott. Um, People recently, um, I've read some stuff about people who survived um, the hurricane in Puerto Rico by simply just kind of stepping out and doing otherwise, right? Um, Right, exactly, yes. um, and, And also, and you even talk about some kinds of practices like that that you find in rural Texas, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. No, right. So, yeah. So my neighbors who are down the street, um, as I've been talking about the book with them, and yeah, uh, one particular guy who grew up in South Texas, sort of close to the coast, as I was describing him, like describing to him these kinds of non-capitalist modes of sharing and gathering food and sharing it and um, and there's work sharing that goes on. There's all, I mean, we all do this actually to some degree, I would argue, but for him, it's like, yes, that's like, that's how I grew up living. And then the next, so one particular moment we'd had that conversation, a group of us. Um, and then the next week, one of those guys brought this big bucket of tilapia to share that he had caught somewhere. I don't know where he'd caught them, but, um, to share with my husband so that these, and, and we share all the time on, you know, in neighborhood kind of ways. And again, it's more likely to happen around um, deer that people have hunted here, fish people have caught. Again, that kind of getting the food by not going to the supermarket is seems to be more connected to sharing the food in a non-capitalist mode. So it's this idea of kind of a closer connection to the earth, if you will, kind of that I think brings people kind of into more of a sharing mode with each other. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I wonder if that's something that we've just kind of missed 
<laughs> for yes, a long time because right. we're so sort of interested in capitalism and how it works that that we've just assumed that everything kind of revolves around it. But exactly. I mean, so the, I, here's where I was another sort of light bulb moment. Gibson Graham, the um, feminist political economist, who forget the titles of their books. One, one might be the end of ends of capitalism, but there are theorists who have said made that exact argument that that are and they're economists who say that our understanding of economics and economic systems is really messed up because we have missed that. There's that everywhere there's tons of non-capitalist kinds of forms of being and, and we absolutely have missed it. And they argue that's actually part of sort of patriarchal thinking, which is an interesting little twist they add to it. But when I read them, I was like, oh, of course, because there's so many ways in which um, people in rural Belize just don't do standard um, kind of that wage work orientation, that capitalist orientation just doesn't, that's just not how people are. I would argue their subjectivity is not created by that system the way that um, Foucault might suggest for say France. So one thing that I wondered throughout the book that's really intriguing is your own relationship to the material, right? And you, you're very open about inserting yourself right into the story and kind of including yourself in, in this, in this, in this scenarios where that, that you were part of and not. And um, I was wondering about your own relationship to that and how you decided to write it that way. I mean, was that, always obvious to you from the beginning that you would kind of put yourself into the story or did you also sort of think about, you know, to what extent were you becoming Creole or not? And I I was very curious about that. Yeah. So no, I mean, once I fell in love with my husband and became part of communities and kind of entwined emotionally in that kind of that depth. So that happened in 1993. I couldn't, think about these places as places that were separate from me. So I knew that I was going to be part of it, but I hadn't, I don't think I actually really thought it through. I think I'm still kind of thinking that through what that entails or means. It's just that the best stories I had often had me in them because I was experiencing them um, firsthand like that. Like I I was part of them and I couldn't really not be part of them. And I wanted to also, I mean, I'm very, I, um, Gina Athena Ulysse is a very close colleague of mine whose work I really admire. Um, and she, you know, the importance of us recognizing our positionality as researchers cannot be underscored enough, right? So that really, it really matters who you are and who's, how the knowledge is being produced. So I knew I always wanted to have that as something I was foregrounding, how I knew what I knew, but I don't think I had, um, I had, uh, my first draft of the paper, I don't even talk about the methods. I don't talk about intimate ethnography and a, a, a reader's like, you have to talk about this. You have to like, you know, like theorize about wh- how you're connected to these people. It's like, Oh yeah. Right. People don't just automatically know that. Um, so yeah, that's it's I'm married into these communities and I'm very much taken as a family member. Um, but I'm always also an outsider I don't know that I've become Creole. I think I'm very, I try to practice some elements of Creole culture. I try to cook and and whatnot. I actually don't fish or hunt. Um, So I have this kind of very ambivalent um, insider outsider 
Native, non-Native positionality always in relationship to this place. Um, but it would have been weird to write it in any other way that I wasn't part of it because I am, right? That would have been some sort of false separation. So I think I sort of had to. And that that was from 1993. And I think um, I'm really grateful that Elise Waterston, Waterston wrote her book about her father and gave me some language to describe what this, what it means to write about your family, which I think is something increasingly common um, that anthropologists are doing. And again, that book that I really like by Aisha Beliso de Jesus, she's also a member of the group that she's talking about and she's talking about family members as well. So it's sort of an interesting, I think that's going to be an increasingly common mode of ethnography. Did you have an encounter with a more than human that, that was very, that was most memorable? <laughs> um, well, I have allergic reactions to things. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, <clears throat> to cashew, uh, the burning of cashew oh, seeds and husks. Um, no, I mean, I really wanted to have an encounter with a jaguar in the story I tell in the book. <laughs> Always wanting to see a jaguar in real life and have never done so. Um, and I tell the story of me walking out by myself to get a little break. Cause I want time on my own and to be kind of have my little moment in nature. And my husband's like furious that I've gone off on my own cause it's a dangerous place. And so I've, I, I partly cause I sort of try to honor my husband's fear of places. I haven't been out by myself in many places to have such an encounter. I mean, I've been stung by a, scorpion that was very painful i almost sat on a tommy goth or a fair lance which is a very poisonous snake uh, when i went out on a hunting trip once but uh, no, yeah those like those are fairly memorable but i still want to see a jaguar <laughs> that's my dream but i don't think it'll ever happen but this point of um the danger and the fear is a really important one right and the yes no i have a yeah. whole chapter on that because it is absolutely it was just uh, I was just reading something on, yeah, a uh, um, piece by Ed Young in The Atlantic on orcas and uh, white, great white sharks and how great white sharks are, if they even sense that an orca's in the area, they're so terrified, they just take off the sort of landscapes of fear. And I think, I think in Western thought and Western being, and I'm an example of this, this inability to really understand how dangerous the world can be is something that is sort of lost. And that's something that's very present for Belizean Creole people, not just in terms of fairdolances or jaguars, but also the landscape. I mean, the number of people who drown in Belize is pretty serious because you know water is very deadly and the, and the awareness of that and people sort of, hypervigilance about children in the area of water, um, winds, mud. I mean, this, it's a really challenging landscape. And I think kind of that humility in the face of that is something that's very much a part of being rural Creole that I think is a, if most people in the global North could shift to that kind of way of being, we might not be in such a bind um, environmentally at the moment. I mean, I think sort of our, the Anglo-Euro sense of domination or the humans being above the natural world has really screwed us over. So at the same time, and 
just as a way to wrap up, the book closes with this idea of livity. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about livity and what it is. And Yeah, yeah. And I was really heartened. I mean, so I had seen the idea in the literature because I'm a big fan of Neil Roberts and I'd read this piece that he had on it. Um, so it's a, it's a Rastafarian concept and Belizeans aren't particularly Rastafarian. I mean, the rural Creole people I know love Rastafarian music and they'll sort of um, follow some Rastafarian ideas, but they're not Rastafarian in the way that the Rastafarian communities in Jamaica actually are. Um, but this idea of livity was actually used, I think I mentioned this in um, the opening to the chapter on conservation, used by a young man who's a fisherman. And he was using it sort of to describe livelihood, but I think he also meant it a little bit more broadly in saying that when our fishing rights are cur- curtailed, you're curtailing our livity. And for Rastafarians, it does indeed mean livelihood. That's a piece of what it means. But it also refers to kind of um, the more kind of life fullness or sort of the the soul and being, the kind of Rastafarian um, I and I being with each other, the sort of rejection of capitalism and a celebration of Blackness and a celebration of life and things that are ital or that are, um, again, sort of pro-life, um, all green things, all animals don't eat meat, that sort of thing, all kind of bound together. And that is kind of a in sort of direct opposition to how white supremacist culture has kind of denigrated Blackness. So it's kind of the reversal of that and, and capitalism. And I see that, uh, in my mind, that's kind of that that movement of celebrating blackness and brownness and celebrating sharing cultures and an understanding of the human as not in domination over the natural world or the more than human, that those things all come together. And that's a really a way that we should all aim to be if we want to move out of this crisis of capitalism and climate change. I think that is a lovely place to end. (laughs) Um, uh, one last question, which is, are you, what are you working on at the moment? Um, well, I also, before I end, I just need to give a shout out to Sylvia Winter. So she's another. Oh, yes. Yeah. Of her ideas yeah. are another central, um, central inspiration for me. And my students laugh at me because I always bring her up. But her basic idea that um, the understanding that most people in the Euroversity, so universities throughout the world that are founded on European ways of thinking, the idea that people trained in those arenas or in the popular culture of uh, Northern thought have of of what the human is, is really misguided and built on a very particular uh, 19th century slash 20th century white male heterosexual, um, Christian, rational, accumulating, as in a capitalist accumulator, um, being, and that that misrepresents what most of the world actually is, all these different genres of human being that she says we should attend to. So that's always something that's in the back of my mind. Um, And that sort of informs how I think in the book. But my next project I'm working on, I have a, a an article that I'm working on right now on commoning. So it's sort of um, the commons and practices of commoning and how uh, radical black radical thought and common commoning thinking overlap 
and could be understood as kind of being about similar things. So I'm sort of working on that in the context of thinking about rural Creole sharing practices. And then I want to do a project on jaguars and this Mm. part of Belize, since there's so many jaguars in this particular area. And there's a really interesting history of um, hunting camps and how trophy hunting by rich white men and black rural Creole Belizean guides and kind of how that shapes how current ranchers in rural Belize think about jaguars and their relationship to them. So I'm kind of working on that. Those are two, two upcoming projects. Those sound really fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for um, inviting me to do this. It's been an absolute blast and I feel really honored to be part of this series. Yeah, total pleasure. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and I hope you stay tuned for the next episode in which I talk to Marixa Lasso, the author of the new book, Erased.